Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd be willing to guess that our Old Testament lesson this morning is not in anyone's top ten favorite stories from the Old Testament. It's not the sort of story from the Old Testament that we all learned in Sunday school and carry with us for the rest of our lives. I have to be honest, I don't think I've ever walked into a Sunday school classroom and seen there with Noah's Ark and David and Goliath and Moses in the bulrushes a picture of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And yet, it is that story that Jesus points us to when he's called upon to explain why it is that he's come, what it is that he's doing. In fact, it is that story that he uses to introduce what is perhaps the most famous thing he ever said, if signs in the end zones of football games are any indication. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. That statement that we all know so well, Jesus means us to understand in the context of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, which he references just right back in John 3, 14. Again, never seen that one on a sign in the end zone in a football game. But I think it means that we should perhaps understand this story about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Because Jesus sort of expects us to understand it. You see, this story comes, obscure as it is, in the middle of an obscure book in the Old Testament, in the middle of the book of Numbers. And it happens after Israel has been miraculously liberated from slavery in Egypt, that God has acted for them and overthrew the most powerful nation in the world and brought them out so that they could be his people. And he has brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. And he has brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and come down to them and given them the law. And when they were thirsty, he gave them water from the rock. And when they were hungry, he provided them manna from heaven. And when they were tired of manna, he provided them with quail. Because they wanted meat. And yet, when they get to the promised land the first time, they forget all of that. They forget everything that God has done on their behalf and they go into the promised land and they say, hey, those people are scary. Those people make us look like grasshoppers. We're not going in there. And of course God says, okay, but your only other choice is to wander around out here. And so they begin their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it is in the early part of that wandering where God is still giving them water from the rock and still providing them the manna and the quail. Where God is still defeating their enemies even just at the beginning of this chapter in the book of Numbers. That they continue to forget what he's doing and to whine and complain and grumble 
against Moses and against the Lord. So that in today's reading they say, we have no food, we have no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now that may sound like a remark made at the dinner table in the rectory any night of the week, but actually it points to something much deeper about the problem the Israelites have. Bitterness and resentment and anger and pride and envy and their refusal to trust God and their rejection of God's good gifts continues to bubble out of them in this grumbling. We have no food and we hate this food. And so once again, God answers them. And we can talk about what it means that he sent serpents among them, but what we have to agree is that God's justice, if anything, is poetic. He sends the poisonous serpents among his people, but they're already full of the poison of the bitterness and the resentment. They're already full of the poison of their rejection of God and their refusal to trust him. The serpents are merely a physical manifestation of the poison from which they are all already dying. But they do convince them to cry out to God for help. And they cry to Moses, and Moses cries to God. And God gives them a solution that is just as strange as the problem. You have to imagine Moses scratching his head, coming back with this one from the Lord. Make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up in the middle of the camp. Now on one hand, Moses has to be thinking, wait, didn't you just tell me back in the second commandment to not make any graven images? And now you're saying, make a bronze serpent. And what's worse, aren't the serpents the problem? Aren't the serpents what are killing us? Why do I want to make one of those? But Moses does. Because God is transforming the instrument of their death into the instrument of their salvation, of their life. He is providing them with the solution to the problem, the antidote to the poison. And it is nothing they have to do. It is merely and completely a gift from God. Just put the serpent on a pole. And all you have to do to feel the power of God's grace is to look at it. To cast your eyes upon it. To do the thing that you've been refusing to do so far. Trust God. Have faith in God. And they do. And they're healed. Now the reason I think that Jesus uses this story and why it's so powerful is that it's really just a parable for the condition in which we find ourselves. The whole human race is suffering from the same poison. Our veins course with the same poison that was killing the children of Israel in the wilderness. And God has provided for us the same Solution, by transforming the instrument 
of our death, death itself, into the instrument of our salvation. We, just like the Israelites, are as good as dead in our trespasses, as Paul says, and yet God provides a way to life. And it's nothing we have to do. It all depends on Him. The Son of Man is high and lifted up. And to be saved, we just must trust. We must cast our eyes upon the Son of Man high and lifted up upon the cross. The manifestation of God's salvation to us. For by grace alone you have been saved, says St. Paul. Through faith. And not through anything you have done. It is the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one may boast. God has provided for us in Jesus Christ the way to life, the antidote to death, salvation in Him. And we access it merely by putting our faith there by casting our eyes upon him, by trusting in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that there's no place for good works. It is true that we are not saved by our good works. But what Paul makes clear, all the more importantly, is that we are saved for our good works. Accepting God's grace through faith, creates us into a people whose way of life is good works. But we must recognize that whatever form our good works may take, in whatever words or deeds they may manifest themselves in our lives, and for each and every one of us, it will be different. What is behind all of our good works is this great truth of God's grace. In all of our good works, what we are doing in ways obvious and ways very subtle, is lifting up the Son of Man high upon the cross so that those who need to can cast their eyes upon Him, so that they can feel the power of His grace in their lives here and now. That is what we are called to do as God's people, as the followers of Christ, in this place. Remembering that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And likewise, he sends us into the world, not to condemn the world. How could we possibly? We're as snake-bitten as everyone else. But so that we might lift up the Son of Man and show the world what God has done because he so loved them. What God has done out of the riches of his mercy, out of his amazing grace. What God has done for us and what God has done for all. That God comes not bringing condemnation, salvation in Jesus Christ.
name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.